The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, happy Tuesday. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, a podcast of RepublicEN.org. I'm Chelsea Henderson, Director of Editorial Content at Republic EN, and I'm so thrilled you have joined us for another episode. Today, I'm bringing you my conversation with Martha Newell Kinsman, a member of the series Federal Policy Team. Martha leads series work with the Florida Congressional Delegation on Climate Change and Clean Energy Policy. And in case you haven't heard of series, which is spelled C-E-R-E-S, it is a sustainability nonprofit organization working with the most influential investors and companies to build leadership and drive solutions throughout the economy. Through powerful networks and advocacy, Ceres tackles the world's biggest sustainability challenges, including climate change, which is why Martha is joining me in conversation today. Prior to joining Ceres, Martha was a Knoss Sea Grant Fellow and Legislative Assistant for Congressman Don Young of Alaska, handling his natural resources, energy, and fisheries portfolio. She previously served as a medic in the U.S. Army. But before I take you to my conversation with Martha, I wanted to share a quick word I had with spokesperson Tyler Gillette. Today, I'm joined by the memorator, as I like to call him, Tyler Gillette. Welcome, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, um, it was just one night I was just like, I was really into memes and I thought it would be funny to just, I was like, hey, maybe I make them climate related. And... I just started to, I thought it would be a good way to get out there and, you know, show another, you know, just use it as another way to spread the word. Yeah, and um, I really like the ones get that out there. show that, you know, it is a big tent, the folks on the center right who want to take climate action. So mm-hmm. we obviously at Republic EN support the approach of a, car- a carbon tax, a revenue neutral border adjustable carbon tax. But we have allies that support different approaches, and y'all are going to hear from some of them because we don't just want to have the choir on this podcast. We plan to have all sorts of different voices um, all advocating for climate action. So anyway, it's good to just know that that was your inspiration, and I think it's a really fun way to just show that we're all on the same team. Yeah, and um, a lot of what I try to do is, you know, use the more recent memes, you know, the more popular trendy ones. And then I just started digging really deep and just started bringing old ones back or finding just random ones and running with it. And I've started to get a little bit better at it as well. Well, I can't wait for one to go viral. (laughs) Sometimes they pick up steam, but I definitely was shocked that, you know, they had some backing and some support. So, Tyler, like a couple of our other spokespeople, you are – a dedicated foot soldier for us, but you also are affiliated with the Citizens Climate Lobby's Conservative Caucus. And I think mm-hmm. that that was the first time I met you in person, right? Was at the reception? Was that just last year? You were so in your element and you had been on the Hill. And so what is it about about that 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 activity about going and speaking to your lawmakers and telling them how you feel that really um, brought that energy to you that I was seeing. 
Yeah, so the main thing was, at least at the social, I finally got to meet all these people that I've been interacting with, you know, through social media and um, text and email. So I was also happy just to finally meet everyone. But um, the the thing about um, the, the June conference was, you know, that night, that earlier that day, we had just watched a uh, we just had um, Catherine Hayhoe speak, and that got me pumped. Um, since I'm definitely um, I have more of a scientific background, so you know, listening to a scientist speak on climate that gets me going. Um, I really enjoyed you know listening to her speak, and I also got to meet her in person and get a picture with her. So I thought that was kind of cool, um, but. The other part was that I finally felt like I was doing something. I was, you know, actually participating, doing something active um, to, like, participate in democracy, especially lobbying um, and talking to my representatives and senators. Um, So that was the main thing because, you know, a lot of times people would call me out and be like, oh, what do you do? Or, oh, you know posting things on social media is not going to do anything. Well, I actually did something. So, Although I would say because um, we do not lobby at Republican.org because we're a 501c3, and so that just is something that we're prohibited from doing. So we can educate and we can definitely share reports and articles and so forth with our political leaders, but we can't go and ask for any specific legislation, which you can do with the Citizens Climate Lobby because they are a C4. So I just wanted to note that for our readers that, um, and then I would just say also that it is the things that you have done with us that have been not lobbying are really impactful. And so I wouldn't discount that, you know, when you write something and it gets published you know, that one, you had that one piece where you called on Senator Portman to show climate leadership. When his name is in an article, it's going to make his clips. He's going to read it. He's going to see it. And so I always just think that that's cool to know that the day that it's printed or maybe the next day that some lawmaker is going to read your words and they may read it and think, huh, yeah, I've got to do something about that. And on that note, you recently wrote a piece that explored your governor, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's early COVID leadership, and which he was definitely out on front on. I feel like he started to make some um, closures and, and issue some safety orders well before Ohio even had their first case of the <clears throat> coronavirus. And in your piece, just for our listeners, um, Tyler basically used the example of Governor DeWine's leadership on COVID and why he should exert the same sort of leadership on climate change. And so I'm wondering, you know, what is it about Governor DeWine that you think makes him a good eco-right example among our nation's governors? So I, I touched, I touched on this in the piece, but the main thing is that he was using scientific data and then working, you know, acting upon that. He was using hard scientific evidence and data to make his decisions. Um, Whether that's popular or not, you know, he did what he thought was right, and that was to go with the actual facts. If you could have five minutes with Governor DeWine, what would you say to him? Um, I would definitely applaud him on his um, 
on how he tackled COVID-19 um, on his early action. Um, and definitely going against the grain, for sure. I would also probably ask and see if he could do it, you know, with climate change here in Ohio, at least, you know, become a voice. So, Tyler, when COVID-19 is gone, which hopefully at some point we'll be able to move about the country again, where would you want to go first? Probably Italy, because I was supposed to go to Italy. Um, I was really excited to go. Right now, I know. Yeah, I, we, me and my mom were going to go for Labor Day, um, and it was canceled because of COVID-19. So that that was probably that would probably be it. <laughs> Taylor, thanks so much for being here today. As always, it's just great to get to see you see from afar. And I just again want to let our listeners know that you can find Tyler and his great memes on Twitter. He's on Twitter at Tyler Gillette G I L L E T T E ninety nine. So look for him. Look for his humor. I always feature it in our weekend review. Sign up if you don't get weekend review, and also be sure to subscribe for our to our podcast. Thanks so much for being here today, Tyler. Thanks for having me. And now. Our executive director, Bob Inglis, with an idea worth sharing. It's important to leave room in the climate conversation for people of faith and to celebrate their faith. You know, sometimes people don't realize that that aren't of faith, that they are really attacking people of faith. So, for example, when Carl Sagan used to say on his show, the cosmos is all there is, all there ever was, all there ever will be. I wonder if he knew that he was attacking people of faith, leaving them out of the conversation. If we're ever to solve climate, it's really important to include people of faith because they, as stewards of the creation, can be crucial parts of the solving of climate change. Maybe it's a thought worth sharing. Hey, listeners, I'm back, and I'm so happy to be talking today to Martha Newell Kinsman, whom I mentioned earlier works with the sustainability nonprofit series. Welcome to the show, Martha. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. So Martha and I got to geek out a little bit on a call we were on together a few months ago when I learned that she's a former Hill staffer. So as I mentioned earlier, she used to work for Representative Don Young from Alaska in the House. Um, Are you from Alaska? Is that how you ended up working for Mr. Young? I'm not. I ended up working for him. I got a fellowship through NOAA. I was a Sea Grant fellow and I got placed in his office. The Sea Grant Fellows are the best people. I swear <laughs> I <agree>. to God. <laughs> I've known so many over my 20 plus years, and I feel like you're a very humble group. So people don't lead off with, I'm a Sea Grant Fellow, but everyone I've known who's been a Sea Grant person is just super smart, super with it. So it's no. incredible working in DC. It's like you can't swing a bat without hitting a Sea Grant Fellow if you work anywhere near climate space. That makes sense. Do you want to explain to our listeners what the Sea Grant Fellowship is? Sure. So it's the John Canal Sea Grant Fellowship, and you do a year either working for the executive branch. Most people are in NOAA, but they also have placements at Department of State, USGS, um, Park Service, just kind of littered across the executive. Um, But then there's also a legislative fellowship. Usually it's between 10 and 15 people go the legislative route. 
And so you're placed somewhere in Congress, either in a personal office, uh, committee office, Senate or House, could be anywhere. And I ended up going with Don Young. That's amazing. So um, you're a former House staffer. I'm a recovering Senate staffer, as all our listeners know. What do you miss about being on the Hill? If anything, maybe you don't miss it, but I bet there's at least something you miss. I loved it. I loved being on the Hill. And, you know, we were talking a little bit before uh, recording started that I live up by Baltimore. And so the only reason that I left was I had a son and the commute was awful. It was about two hours door to door. And so I just didn't have any time with him. But I loved being on the Hill. I've always loved politics and just being there and being in the middle of the storm that is Capitol Hill was an incredible experience. I wish that I could go back. Um, maybe at some point the cards will fall right that I can. But, you know, for right now, being here, working from home, working for series is is a great experience also. But the Hill, there's nothing that compares to working on the Hill. Yeah, I agree. I did two tours of duty. So my very first job when I moved to Washington, D.C., back before probably some of our listeners were born, I worked on in the Senate. So I'm, you know, Senate snob a little bit, sorry. And... Um, <laughs> I only left because my boss lost his reelection in 2002, and then I went back and worked for John Warner until he retired. So I worked for four different members. One died, one retired, and one lost his election. So I've kind of <laughs> experienced a little of everything. Um, you know, I miss the the friendships that really develop when you're there, and the unusual partnerships too. I think that there is. There is definitely a lack of bipartisanship that that seems to resonate pretty loudly at the national level. But I think that when you look dig down and look at some of the friendships across staff and the friendships across members, that you do see a little bit more cooperation, at least the days when I was there. And so I miss that. And I miss that kind of being in the trenches. And I always joke that when the House and the Senate are doing their like, late night votorama, usually at the end of a congressional session when they're trying to get appropriations or something big done before they go. And and sometimes, in the, you know, you could be there all night as a staff person and, you know, you order your pizzas or whatever. And I miss that. And my <laughs> friends who are still on the Hill are like, you're crazy. That's the worst part of the job. And I'm like, but it is in the moment. But after, it's fun, right? You just went through something really intense together with somebody. It is fun. And I was talking with uh, with a couple of people earlier about life on the Hill. I was saying, you know, basically the same thing that you just were. A lot of my friends were on the other side of the aisle, because especially in our office, working for a member who's been there for as long as Don Young has, you get to understand that if you want to get anything done, you have to be friends with people on the other side of the aisle. Yeah. And, you know, in the House, we call the Senate just the black hole where things go to die. We get... <laughs> All sorts of stuff passed, and then it would go to the Senate and just languish. So, but now you work for Ceres, and I had the pleasure of getting to know Ceres a little bit back about 10 years ago when I was um, the L word, a lobbyist. Hmm. <laughs> and Ceres was a partner at the time working to um, bring a business message to the need to address climate change. I was not on the Hill at this time. I just said that, right? I'm a, I was a lobbyist. And I just remember thinking, wow, this is a voice that's really needed. At that time, we had the faith community coming out. And we recently just um, had an episode with Lindsay Linsky, who is a faith-based author, who talks about you know the 
need to address climate change from that perspective. And so we had that going and we had the military guys saying this is a national security threat. But to really get that business voice, I felt like that made some people kind of perk up and look at it from a different angle. So it's super important, but you have built this network over the years. Like, it's huge now. So I think feel like Ceres was kind of tiny back when I first um, heard of it and started working with it, and now it's just this great, amazing force. Yeah, so, it, you know, Ann Kelly, our, uh, our vice president for policy, really built up the policy team over the last few years. I, you know, I just joined the company in November, so I've been here for eight, nine months now. Um, so I'm still, you know, pretty new to to the advocacy side of things. Um, but Anne has has really built up the team, especially in the last few years. We have great work going on at the state level, and then at the federal level, you know, we're pushing and doing what we can. Um, and I'm I'm really glad to be here because I think that you know when we think about climate and clean energy, a lot of it is directed toward Democrats and saying, well, you know, especially in the current current climate. People are looking at maybe a change in administration, maybe a change in Senate leadership. And I think that you and I and other people who are familiar with how the hill works are saying, that's all great, but you're still going to need Republicans. If you know the House, like you were saying, can ram anything through that they want to. But once it gets to the Senate, even if there's a flip, you need to have Republicans on board. And I think that that's where we can really come in with the businesses to talk to Republicans and say, listen, we have this whole coalition of companies and investors that are making these climate pledges and saying they're going to be carbon neutral or even carbon negative by 2030, 2050, whatever it is. But they need regulatory bedrock to work with and they need these regulations in place. And we need to look at things like border adjustments to make sure that Americans are producing materials. And so... You know, that's where I think that we we can come in as series with these networks and say, yes, we're doing our work. The private sector is starting to to pick up the the baton, but now we need Congress to act. Right, because a lot of your companies, as you said, they've made carbon neutrality pledges and and so forth, but they also support of or some of them support anyway putting an actual price on carbon, which is what would come at the federal level. Yeah, they do. Um, so last year we did this lead on carbon pricing and we had, I think it was 80 something businesses come together on Federal Hill or on Capitol Hill um, to talk to congressmen, talk to lawmakers about putting a price on carbon. It was very specifically that message. You need to put a price on carbon. Um, and we did another lead this year. But given the, the environment, we recognize that strictly focusing on the price on carbon maybe isn't the best messaging. Um, so it was lead on climate, but we still said this has to include at some level a price on carbon. I mean, I think that is really important. Um, what you were saying about the need for, um, we need both parties, right? There is no one party solution to climate Mm -hmm. change. And so, you know, uh, the Democrats aren't going to get it without Republicans and Republicans wouldn't get anything without Democrats. And so that is where I think the price on carbon is a nice alternative because I do believe there are enough Democrats that would take that if that was put on the table. Yeah. And, you know, we're we are certainly happy with the the step that they've taken at you know, on their own level um, as companies to say climate change is an existential threat. You know, we're dealing with this pandemic right now, but this should be treated as a dress rehearsal for the upcoming climate crisis. 
And so as companies, as companies with large footprints in America, we need to take accountability for ourselves and we need to put these these carbon neutral um, limits on ourselves and and create these goals. So um, explain a little bit to our listeners how series works. I believe if I'm right, it's not quite like a trade association where within a trade association you have um, different companies that belong and they're kind of all fall along different lines of the spectrum. So somebody might be for something and somebody might be against. And sometimes with the trade associations, it's hard to support a policy because you have to have all your members on board. But I feel like everyone who is part of series is coming with a base um, position on these issues. Yeah. So, so series has, has a few different networks. We have our investor network and our company network, and that is made up of appropriately investors or companies. Um, and then we have a nonprofit network. And then the one that I'm most familiar with is our policy network. So this was originally called BICEP. Um, and it's, it's a group of, I think we have around 60 companies now um, that advocate on Capitol Hill and on uh, in state legislatures for climate and clean energy and clean water policies. Um, so these are the, the companies that we really lean on when we do sign-on letters, when we do advocacy days to uh, to engage with lawmakers at state and federal levels um, to try and pass those sort of policies. So, and you specifically, Martha, are focused on Florida, is that right? Yeah, so, so I work on the federal level, um, but I'm really focused on the Florida delegation because when we think about climate change, Florida is already seeing the impacts. They're having this extreme sea level rise the Keys had this incredible high tide, king tide last year, um, where streets were flooded for months. They've got the extreme weather events. Um, it's getting hotter and wetter. So, you know, it's going to eventually impact tourism. There's more mosquitoes being seen, which bring more disease. So all of these cascading impacts from climate change are already being seen in Florida. Um, and, you know, within the Florida delegation, we've got people like Kathy Castor, who are chair of the Climate Solutions Caucus, not the Climate Solutions Caucus, excuse me, the House Committee on the Climate Crisis. Um, but then we also have Francis Rooney on the Republican side, who is one of the co-chairs of the House Climate Solutions Caucus. So we've got, you know, this nice mix of Democrats and Republicans who are already working on climate change. We've got Matt Gates, who has famously said, I didn't come to Congress to argue with a thermometer. Yes, I love that um, quote. <laughs> I love that, too. Um, we've got Brian Mast, who had a great meeting with some of our businesses um, and was really interested in clean energy jobs that may come to his district. So, you know, we've got these great Republicans in the, the delegation that we're working with to try and move them a little bit more on climate change and to move more on clean energy policies. And also, I think that Governor DeSantis, he came in and set a different tone than his predecessor and opened the um, or created the Office of Resilience and having the first that cabinet level yeah. position and having the um, a chief scientist. So I guess it's chief of resilience and chief of chief. science. Is, are those the titles? Oh, yeah. It was the chief resiliency officer. Okay. Um, so yeah, he created that office. And so he was really looking at, you know, how can the state become more resilient to these impacts from climate change? And that's smart. I think other states are going to want to um, 
mimic that. And, you know, you've now worked for a person from Florida, uh, from Alaska, the other state that is on the front lines of climate change and now focused on Florida. You have kind of seen it from both perspectives. Yeah. And, you know, in Alaska, so when I was working for Don Young, I was doing natural resources, you know, energy, environment, and a lot of oceans work because Alaska, of course, has more coastline than any other state. And so many of the jobs up there are oceans based, whether it's tourism, fisheries, you name it. Um, so we were doing a lot with, with oceans and looking at ocean acidification. And there are less red tide blooms up there, but, you know, we still have these harmful algal blooms. There's fishery movement. So as waters get warmer, fisheries start moving to, to uh, higher latitudes. Um, so, and these are all things that we're seeing in Florida too, you know, more on the, the HABs, the harmful algal blooms, but they have incredibly high levels of ocean acidification. The reefs uh, down there are starting to, to die off. Um, you know, you're seeing more algal cover instead of reef cover, which impacts the fisheries. You're seeing fisheries move to these higher latitudes. So the fishermen that are based in Florida can't catch them anymore or they have to move somewhere else. It's just, a, like I said before, a cascading impact. Yeah, well, then all the more reason why the work that you do is so important. Um, I was going to say about Alaska, I have not been and it's been on my dream list. In fact, I put it on my list of 50 things to do before I turned 50, which was last year. And then I decided to go to Costa Rica instead. <laughs> so, um, And then COVID happened and now we can't go anywhere. But I do still hope to get to Alaska at some point and um, see it in all its natural glory and beauty. But um, And I've been to Florida. Not that it's not beautiful, but wow, it is, it is hot. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, but we won't be well, going anywhere. I strongly anywhere. recommend if you can get to Alaska, do it. It's incredible. So um, when you were talking about fisheries and so forth in Florida, what what sort of business partners do you have down there? Are, do you have people who are in the seafood industry who are part of your network or part of, part of BICEP or do is that still a work in progress? A little bit of a work in progress. You know, we, we have a lot of food producers, Annie's, Ben and Jerry's, um, McDonald's, Kellogg's, all sorts of different food food producers and agriculture-based companies. Um, they don't really do so much with fish. And from what I understand in Florida, a lot of the fisheries are smaller. You know, they're selling to like restaurants. Right. Um, you know, you're not getting that red snapper really up across the food chain or sorry, across the, uh, the agricultural chain. It's really staying more local. Yeah. And then you have crops like oranges and sugar and so forth, too, that I assume would be impacted by or are being impacted by climate change. Yeah. And that's that's really where we can work with our our, uh, our companies. You know, one of the companies that has a big footprint in Florida is Driscoll's Berries. Um, and they get a lot of I think they're strawberries and I want to say they're blackberries from Florida. Um, and especially in Congressman Spano's district, you know, they have a, this whole strawberry fest and Driscoll's is a huge producer there. Um, and we're seeing the crops either languishing because, you know, with COVID, there just aren't enough workers or they're just not growing. You know, it's getting too warm. And so the crops aren't producing as much as they used to anymore. So that's impacting the food producers all the way across the supply chain. You know, if they can't get the base product, then they can't make the food anymore. I think there are just so many layers to this problem of climate change that go beyond what people normally think. There's kind of a knee-jerk, hot, cold weather reaction. But when you start to dig deep and you look at the impacts on 
on the agricultural um, industries, on, you know, pretty much everyone, tourism, we're all, everyone's going to be impacted. Yeah. And so I would remiss, be remiss if I didn't mention that right now we're doing LEAD 2.0. So this is kind of like our lead on climate that we just did. Um, with meetings on a rolling basis, more targeted to leadership and committee chairs and ranking members, um, bringing our businesses back, bringing businesses that have a footprint in those members' districts to say, you know, you're working on a fifth stimulus bill right now. There needs to be something with climate change in there, something with clean energy, helping to recover the clean energy jobs that have been lost. Um, So we have our businesses going back to the Hill with these virtual meetings, talking with members, talking with their staff to say, yeah, this is what we need. This is what we're expecting you to do. So, you know, and and I'm hopeful that that message will will stick and that we'll be able to get something out. If not in this next bill, then maybe next Congress, um, if there's a sixth stimulus bill, although we are getting very short on legislative time. Very short on time. So for most people (laughs) listening, if you haven't worked on the Hill, you're thinking it's July. There's plenty of time left in the year, but the way the congressional calendar works, usually August, they all get out of town, although this summer they may not, given the um, severity of the issues that still need to be addressed. And then as (laughs) you'd have to be living under a rock to not know it's an election year. (laughs) So um, usually in election years, Congress adjourns a little bit earlier so that everyone can go home and and campaign and I was just going to ask earlier, um, you mentioned, you know, bringing your members in to see their lawmakers. And of course, we're not bringing anyone anywhere these days. These are virtual meetings. Do you find it is easier or harder to get in front of lawmakers and their staff right now when everyone is meeting virtually? I think it's easier. So, you know, you don't have to walk around the hill. You can do back to back to back meetings. So say a meeting is 30 minutes. You can do one at noon, another one at 1230, another one at one o'clock. You don't have to worry about leaving 10 minutes early to get to the next room. You you just X out of one, go to meeting and then go to the next one. So I think it's a little bit easier. I think that people are a little bit more relaxed. you know, especially in the meetings with lawmakers, I think that sometimes there's a little bit of a starstruck effect that can happen with some lawmakers. And seeing them through a screen, I think, is a little bit easier for, for our businesses, especially the ones that haven't done a lot of advocacy before. Um, it's just a little bit of a more relaxed environment. Yeah, Plus, especially you when you work. hear that lawmaker's dog bark or, <laughs> right. like, oh, they're just a person, too. Yeah. And it just feels like it's a way to be accessible to people because those members also sometimes they have hearings or they have votes or things that come up unexpectedly and they may have the best intention to meet with the folks that are on their schedule. Um, But as Martha and I both know, having worked for members, the schedule isn't always in their control. So it feels like we have a little more control even while we in some ways have less control right now. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, from our perspective, it's also a lot easier to get businesses to Mm -hmm. go to these virtual flying days instead of asking them to spend money on plane tickets, uh, hotel rooms, meals, everything that goes into a real fly-in day advocacy event on the Hill. If you're doing it from your house, then we can get a lot more businesses involved because they don't have those baseline expenses. And we've seen this, too, with Bob Inglis's schedule. He is normally going around the country and talking to folks about conservative climate leadership. And he obviously is grounded like the rest of us <laughs> and has been doing some virtual meetings. And 
There was one he had at the Metropolitan Club in New York with one of our spokespeople. And the same meeting last year, I think he said there were, you know, in the 30s in terms of the attendance. And then he did a Zoom one last month and he had like 175 people. So, yeah, you're right. People are home and they also have a little more time on their hands. So, well, Martha, it has been so great to talk to you. And I feel like we could talk all day. And when we can talk together in person again... We can meet halfway between Glen Burnie and Cheverly and have Perfect. lunch once those kinds of things are allowable. Um, <laughs> but in the meantime, thank you so much for chatting with us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciated this. We now continue on the Eco Rights Speaks podcast. Visit republicen.org online to sign up and stand with us. Price, I am so happy again to be talking to you. It's one of my favorite parts about um, recording this podcast is I know that every week you and I get to have a little sesh together. <laughs> well, we have team seshes, but we never get to have 1v1 session. Is a small team. I wish we had like one more 1v1 seshes together, but I agree. This is one of my favorite parts of the week to uh, to wrap things up, talk about the episode, anything that's happened uh, during the week. And one of the frustrating things, Chelsea, about uh, this time that we're in, I mean, there are many, many frustrating things about the current COVID pandemic we're all living and surviving through. But, you know, it's the fact that we're not getting any kind of climate news, any kind of climate action right now. You know, the news, you mean, you do weekend review. And if, if everybody right now listening has not subscribed, please go to our website, Republican.org, and do so. But there's, you know, fantastic job you do with that. But it's just been, whoa. We need some news here, folks. I mean, obviously, we all know that the only news right now going on is pretty much anything and everything somehow related to COVID-19. Right, or the election. But um, there is one little piece of news that I am including in the Week in Review that will run on Friday, July 24th. So, listeners, you'll be hearing this podcast on Tuesday, the 28th, but on the 24th, um, Week in Review, and it relates to our guest that we had this week, um, that we have this week, Martha Newell Kinsman, who comes from the Climate Advocacy Group Series, which is spelled C-E-R-E-S, for those who didn't catch in the earlier segment. Series organized a letter that must have just dropped or became public after Martha and I spoke. And they had a number of signatories on this letter price. They sent it to the Federal Reserve the Securities and Exchange Commission, and a number of other financial agencies and institutions, basically asking them to calculate climate risk in yep. financial decisions that they make. And I felt like that was a pretty – and Bob signed the letter, by the way. So yep. um, I just saw a little bit of press on that this week after my conversation with Martha, or she and I would have talked about it more but you never know. You know, you can't control the news flow, I guess. We just have to do with what we got. Yeah, you're exactly right about that story because it did. It made um, – it popped in a few places, not just the trades in, in the D.C., uh, mostly the D.C., uh, you know, the inside the Beltway type uh, pubs. But um, I thought it was significant in, because, you know, when you talk about accounting for risk, I mean, that's – that that is conservative or- orthodoxy in terms of you know especially like what insurers do is they calculate risk and I think that what they were asking to have done um, I mean it's it's just logical it's sensical to me especially when we're getting into hurricane season and we have so much money every single year um, that goes out the door 
um, you know, with, with storms and uh, federal disaster relief. I'm not trying to go climate and hurricane tying that there, but we all know that, you know, with the strength of these storms, it seemed to only get stronger every year. Um, you know, accounting for that risk is vitally important, Chels. It is. And actually, Price, you just perfectly segued into um, next week's episode in which we are going to hear from a couple of guys that work with the American Water Security Project. Mm -hmm. And really what they're all about is ensuring that our infrastructure is able, is resilient and can sustain the changes in our environment that we're seeing because of climate change. And people might go, oh, boring. (laughs) That sounds boring. But, you know, don't you want to make sure that you have clean, potable water? Like that's a pretty important thing. And, And I feel like especially in climate circles, when we are hearing from Republicans who aren't bought in on the need to address climate change, they'll use clean water and clean air as their fallback. Oh, I want clean water and I want clean air. And as we discuss in next week's episode, you can't separate the issues out, right? You can't just say, I want clean water and not have a discussion about climate change. Florida, August coming up. We all know what that means. Hurricane season official it's officially begun but we all know that really hurricane season doesn't pick up until we get to the month of august but it is timely that we will have them on um i did want to uh to to throw this out there real quick as folks know we'll read a review um if you give us and write one on apple Podcasts, which we are trying to get 100 which is one of chelsea's life goals please go (laughs) when you're on apple podcast if you subscribe and listen to us on that uh you know, podcast platform every week, please give us a, a rating and write a review. If you have a couple seconds, it literally only takes maybe all of 60 seconds to hit one button and then write a couple sentences or one. Um, one we got this week, I will read if you write one um, on the podcast, and I'm going to read one that we got since last week. It says, bipartisan friendly. This is the podcast that both conservatives and liberals did not know they needed. The bipartisan approach is crucial in this time of polarization in our country, and that's something that what you and Martha talked about a little bit about working, you know, with uh, you know the majority and the mi- minority on on the Hill and that you know feature guest interview that you had earlier with her. Um, I, it just, you know, I, having worked for Bob, you know, in the House, and it is so so true. I felt like I was kind of going back and living some of English 2.0 uh, when I was listening to you guys talk during that that portion about working. Uh, together with the other side of the aisle, because if you don't have relationships and you don't have people in, whether it be Senate or House offices, you can go to and at least initiate the discussion to jumpstart things and then start moving from there for co-sponsors. But you have got to have a friend on the other side of the aisle that trusts you in that office. And that's why bipartisanship is so vitally important. And honestly, it's one thing that we're missing right now in America. It really is so important. And I love to tell the story about when I worked on the Environment and Public Works Committee, and and it was actually kind of a tense time with the things were a little bit um, strained. The Senate was in a 50-50 position or a 51-49, I believe, but the Republicans had the majority, and President George W. Bush was president, and uh, Jim Jeffords from Vermont, um, a moderate Republican, was in a spat with the president over special ed funding, and he end up, ended up leaving the Republican Party 
becoming independent and caucusing with the Democrats, which flipped control of the Senate from the Republicans to the Democrats. And it was a huge, huge deal. He actually very sadly, one of his best friends in the Senate and and Senator Jeffords has since passed away, but Mm -hmm. one of his best friends was then um, leader Trent Lott and they never spoke again or something really sad like that over that change. But to bring it back to me, because everything should be about me, Price. Well, you're the star. Staff. You're the host. <laughs> so here I was in the majority of the of EPW staff, and I everything that I worked on was bipartisan. So really the only change in my personal life from that flip was who initiated the report writing for everything that came out of committee. When you're in the majority, we had to write the reports for bills that came out, and we would send them to the minority, and they or we would work on them together unless – they disagreed with what we were trying to, you know, with the bill that we had moved out of committee, in which case they would write um, their minority views. But mostly we had these bipartisan reports. And so it just meant I didn't have to write the reports anymore. And I had a little baby at home. So I was like, oh, less work for me. <laughs> so on a personal level, I was like, this isn't this doesn't change my life at all. And it is just not th- that way today. You do not see that level of cooperation um, between the two sides and that is a shame. And so it was really fun to just talk with Martha and reminisce a little bit being on the Hill. We didn't really get much price into the House versus Senate thing. You know I'm a Senate snob. I can't help it. You all but. are. Everybody that works on the Senate side is a Senate snob. I I know it's you know bigger, badder. You might have a bigger budget, but there's just something about working in the people's house, working for the people in the House of Representatives. Uh, we all have our, uh, you know, we'll draw our line and we'll stick to our guns and what's better. But, you know, I, there's just something about serving the people in the people's house. It's just something, there's just something special about it. There really is. And as I said, um, as Martha and I both said in the um, earlier segment, I really encourage any listener who has an opportunity to work for your member of Congress or any member of Congress, House, Senate, uh, in the district, in D.C., it doesn't matter. Take the opportunity. It is really life-changing. Even if it's too stressful, you do it for a year, It you will make friends you have for life. You will have experiences you will never forget. Yeah, and we haven't been paid to give any endorsements like this, but, you know, if you've got a child, if you've got, uh, you know, a rising, uh, you know, a high schooler, chance to be a part of the PAGE program in Washington, um, to be able to go to D.C. for the summer, usually do some uh, educational stuff. I mean, there's, you know, stuff for college students to come up and, and, and intern, you know, in, in the different offices. There's different ways, you know, whether it's even if it's not full time, especially to get a taste of it. Um, if you've got, you know, uh, you know, a student, you know, that's in, in your house, one of your kids, um, it's a great way for them to learn about democracy and, you know, just to get a taste of something a lot bigger and in, in how democracy functions in Washington. And, you know, so many staffers we had come through Bob's office, the, you know, the impression and the experience that they got having to uh, getting to do that. Just it was, it was immense and, you know, getting to still talk to them today. But, um, you know, one thing I want to, to shout out real quick, uh, whether you're Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, doesn't matter. Um, we want you to join our team, um, especially if you are on the conservative side of the aisle. We really want you to join us at Republican. Uh, just go to Republican.org. Stand with us, Chels. We got a couple. We got a lot of new members, but a couple that randomly picked out uh, to shout out this week. John Billingsley from Mountain Park, Georgia. Rachel Purdy, Tucson, Arizona. Rohan Aurora, Chantilly, Virginia. 
Esperanza Rivera from Phoenix, Arizona, and Adam Novak from Boise, Idaho. So please join us. Stand with us at Republican.org. Uh, Chelsea, you've already teased who we got coming up next week. Before we get out the door, I just wanted to say I saw one of the coolest, the funniest, neatest photos last night, and it was on Instagram of one of your kids and that old bay mask that one of your sons had. <laughs> I thought was one of the best face masks I've seen yet. I showed it to my wife and said, look at Chelsea's son right here. Is that face mask not awesome? <laughs> Old Bay, you live in Maryland. It only goes hand in hand. So I will definitely include that picture in the blog post that we always have on our website on the day that these podcasts air. And we have all the links to anything that is discussed in that as well. But yeah, so my old, that was my younger son, Colin. He's a rising junior in high school. My my graduate who's going to college in two weeks. <laughs> um, I was thinking, Oh, he needs um, something patriotic for Maryland. And so I'd seen somebody with these Maryland flag masks on. And so I went to the website and then when I saw the old Bay, I mean, my younger son loves old Bay. He uses the, not only the spice, but he has like a special sauce that's old Bay sauce. Mm. I mean, he puts old Bay on everything. So I thought, all right, what a better way to get your kids to wear masks than to get them in things that they love. So we have Red Sox masks and Spider-Man masks and old Bay masks, you know, Spider-Man, I'm sorry, they're teenagers. You can still bribe them with superhero masks. Awesome. Absolutely. Awesome. Can't wait for you to post it uh, for everybody to see. It's really cool. But Chelsea, you know, I will see you again next week. Appreciate all our listeners. Until then, uh, we will do it again then. All right, everyone, stay cool out there. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast, brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco right leader.